Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about spontaneous human combustion. Now, spontaneous human combustion, SHC, is the pseudoscientific concept of the spontaneous combustion of a living, or recently deceased, human body without an apparent external source of ignition. In addition to reported cases, descriptions of the alleged phenomenon appear in literature and both types have been observed to share common characteristics characteristics in terms of circumstances and the remains of the victim. Scientific investigations have attempted to analyse reported instances of SHC and have resulted in hypotheses regarding potential causes and mechanisms including victim behaviour and habits, alcohol consumption and proximity to potential sources of ignition, as well as the behaviour of fires that consumed melted fats. Natural explanations as well as unverified natural phenomena have been proposed to explain reports of SHC. The current scientific consensus is that purported cases of SHC involved overlooked external sources of ignition. Now we get into the overview. Spontaneous human combustion refers to the death from a fire originating without an apparent external source of ignition, a belief that the fire starts within the body of the victim. This idea and the term spontaneous human combustion were both first proposed in 1746 by Paul Raleigh, a fellow of the Royal Society, in which an article published in the Philosophical Transactions concerning the mysterious death of Countess Cornelia Zanguri Bandy, and I'm sorry if I get that name wrong, which I'll talk about her case in a minute. Writing in the British Medical Journal in 1938, Coroner Gavin Thurston describes the phenomenon as having apparently attracted the attention not only of the medical profession, but of the laity 100 years ago. End quote. Referring to a fictional account published in 1834 in the Frederick Marriott Cycle. In his 1995 book Ablaze, Larry E. Arnold, a director of Paris Science International, wrote that there had been about 200 cited reports of spontaneous human combustion worldwide over a period of around 300 years. Now we get into the death of Cornelia Zanghiri Bandy. I apologise if I get any names wrong in this section of my podcast. Now, Cornelia Zangari Bandy, born 20th of July 1664 and died on the 15th of March 1731, was an Italian noblewoman generally known for the circumstances surrounding a mysterious death, which is frequently described as a possible case of spontaneous human combustion. Now we get into her biography and death. Cornelia Zangari was born in, and I'm going to butcher this name, Longanio Emilia Romanga Papal State to Count Francesco Maria Zangari and his wife Margarita. 
She married Count Francisco Bandi and gave birth to Giovanni Carlo, future Cardinal of the Catholic Church, Maria Colomba, Margarita Fellis, Giuseppe and Teresa, El Elisabetta and Anna Margarita. Her daughter Anna Teresa married Count Marco Aurelio Brasacci, giving birth in 1717 to Giovanni Angelo, future Pope Pius VI, from 1775 to 1779. But now we get into a death. According to the 1745 issue by the correspondent Paul Rolly, who translated for the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, a, a 1731 study by the Verance historian Giuseppe Bianchini, and I'm going to butcher all of this, and I do apologize for this translation piece here, Pereri sopra la chig... Cagion della morte della singorna contesta Cornelia Zangari Nibandi Sessenti, which translated as Opinion on Cause of Death of Lady Countess Cornelia Zangari. Now, I do apologize for getting that wrong. I terrible at pronouncing other languages, so I do apologize for that, listeners. During her last dinner, the 66-year-old Countess was dull and heavy. Some accounts report that she was a brandy drinker and that she used to sprinkle camperated brandy on her body to relieve physical pain. The maid accompanied her to her room, and the two spent over three hours chatting and praying. The maid left her mistress already asleep. The next day, when she did not get up at the usual time, she went to wake her up and found the remains of the Countess. The room was full of soot and and the body of the countess had been reduced to a pile of ashes. It was little more than one meter or three foot three inches from the bed, although her lower legs below the knee, three fingers in front of her skull were relatively intact. The bed and the rest of the furniture had not been affected by the fire, but were covered by a greasy and smelly layer. On the floor, there was an oil lamp covered with ashes, but without oil. The way the sheets were found seems to indicate that the countess had risen at some point during the night. Now we get into the full account by Paul Rolly. Quote, the Countess Cornelia Bandy, in the 62nd year of her age, was all day as well as she used to be, but at night was observed when at supper dull and heavy. She retired, was put to bed where she passed three hours and more in familiar discourses with her maid, and in some prayers. At last, falling asleep, the door was shut. In the morning, the maid, taking notice that her mistress did not awake at the usual hour, went into the bedchamber and called her, but not being answered, doubting of some ill accident opened the window and saw the corpse of her mistress in this deplorable condition. Four feet distance from the bed, there was a heap of ashes, two legs untouched from the foot to the knee. With their stockings on, between them was the lady's head, whose brains, half of the back part of the skull, and the whole chin were burnt to ashes, amongst which were found three fingers blackened. All the rest were ashes, which had this particular quality that they left in the hand when taken up, greasy and stinking moisture. The air in the room also observed cumbered with soot floating in it. A small oil lamp on the floor was covered with ashes, but no oil in it. Two candles and candlesticks upon a table stood upright. The cotton was left in both, but the tallow was gone and vanished. Somewhat of moisture was about the feet of the candlesticks. The bed received no damage. The blankets and sheets were only raised on one side, as when a person rises up from it or goes in. The whole furniture, as well as the bed, was spread over with moist and ash-coloured soot, which had penetrated into the chest of drawers, even to foul the linens. Nay, the soot was also gone into a neighbouring kitchen and hung on the walls, movables, aid utensils of it. From the pantry of a piece of bread covered with soot and brown black was given to several dogs, all which refused to eat it. In the room above, it was moreover taken notice that from the lower part of the windows trickled down a greasy, loathsome, yellowish-looking 
cure, and thereabout they smelled like a stink without knowing of what, and saw the soot fly around. It was remarkable that the floor of the chamber was so thick, smeared with a gluish moisture that it could not be taken off, and the stink spread more and more through the other chambers. End quote. Now that was an extract by Mr. Paul Rolly, FRS of an Italian trustee, written by the Reverend Joseph Bianchi, a prebend in the city of Verona, upon the death of the Countess Cornelia Zingari and Bandi of Cessna, to which are subjoined accounts of the death of Joe Hitchell, who was burned to death by lightning, and of Grace Pittadips, which whose body was consumed to a coal. Now we get into the characteristics behind spontaneous human combustion. The topic received coverage in the British Medical Journal in 1938. An article by L.A. Perry cited an 1823 published book, Medical Jurisprudence, which stated that the commonalities among recorded cases of spontaneous human combustion included the following characteristics. 1. The victims are chronic alcoholics. 2. They are usually elderly females. 3. The body has not burned spontaneously, but some lighted substance has come into contact with it. 4. The hands and feet usually fall off. 5. The fire has caused very little damage to combustible things in contact with the body. And 6. The combustion of the body has left a residue of greasy and fetid ashes, very offensive in odour. Alcoholism is a common theme in early SHC literary references, in part because some Victorian-era physicians and writers believed spontaneous human combustion was the result of alcoholism. Now we get into the scientific investigation side of things. An extensive two-year research project involving 30 historical cases of alleged SHC was conducted in 1984 by scientific investigator Joe Nickel and forensic analyst John F. Fisher. Their lengthy two-part report was published in the Journal of the International Association of Arson Investigators, as well as part of a book. Nickel has written frequently on the subject, appeared on television documentaries, conducted additional research, and lectured at the New York State Academy of Fire Science at Montour Falls, New York, as a guest instructor. Nickel and Fisher's investigation, which looked at the cases in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries, showed that the burned bodies were close to plausible sources for the ignition, candles, lamps, fireplaces and so on. Such sources were often admitted from published accounts of these incidents, presumably to deepen the aura of mystery surrounding an apparently spontaneous death. The investigations also found that there was a correlation between alleged SHC deaths and the victim's intoxication, or other forms of incapacitation, which could conceivably have caused them to be careless and unable to respond properly to an accident. Where the destruction of the body was not particularly extensive, a primary source of combustible fuel could plausibly have been the victim's clothing or a covering such as a blanket or comforter. However, where the destruction was extensive, additional fuel sources were involved, such as chair stuffing, floor coverings, the flooring itself, and the like. The investigators described how such materials helped to retain melted fat, which caused more of the body to be burned and destroyed, yielding still more liquefied fat in a cycle process known as the wick effect or the candle effect. And I'll get into the wick effect later on in this podcast. I'll explain that a little bit more in depth. According to Nickel and Fisher's investigation, nearby objects often remain undamaged because fire tends to burn upward but burns laterally with some difficulty. The fires in question are relatively small, achieving considerable destruction by the wick effect and relatively nearby objects may not be close enough to catch fire themselves much as one can closely approach a modest campfire without burning. As with other mysteries, Nicol and Fisher cautioned against single simplistic explanation for all unusual burning deaths, but rather urged investigating on an individual basis. 
Neurologist Stephen Novella has said that the skepticism about spontaneous human combustion is now bleeding over into becoming popular skepticism about spontaneous combustion. A 2002 study by Angie M. Christensen of the University of Tennessee cremated both healthy and osteoporotic samples of human bones, sorry if I get that name wrong, and compared the resulting colour changes and fragmentation. The study found that osteoporotic bone samples consistently displayed more discoloration and a greater degree of fragmentation than healthy ones. The same study found that when human tissue is burned, the resulting flame produces a small amount of heat, indicating that fire is unlikely to spread from burning tissue. Now we get into some suggested explanations. The scientific consensus is that incidents which might appear as spontaneous combustion did in fact have an external source of ignition, and that spontaneous human combustion without an external ignition source is extremely implausible. Pseudoscientific hypotheses have been presented which attempt to explain how SHC might occur without an external flame source. Benjamin Radford, science writer and deputy editor of the science magazine Skeptical Inquirer, casts doubt on the plausibility of spontaneous human combustion. Quote, if SHC is a real phenomenon and not the result of an elderly or infant person being too close to a flame source, why didn't it happen more often? There are 5 billion people in the world today in 2011, and yet we don't see reports of people bursting into flames or walking down the street, attending football games, or sipping coffee at a local Starbucks. End quote. So we're going to cover some natural explanations for why SHC occurs. First off, almost all postulated cases of SHC involve people with low mobility due to advanced age or obesity along with poor health. Victims show a high likelihood of having died in their sleep or having been unable to move once they caught fire. Smoking is often seen as a source of the fire. Natural causes such as heart attacks may lead to the victim dying, subsequently dropping the cigarette, which after a period of smoldering can ignite the victim's clothes. The wick effect hypothesis suggests that a small external flame source, such as a burning cigarette, chars the clothing of the victim at a location, splitting the skin and releasing subcutaneous fat, which is in turn absorbed into the burned clothing, acting as a wick. The combustion can continue for as long as the fuel is available. This hypothesis has been successfully tested with pig tissue and is consistent with evidence recovered from cases of human combustion. The human body typically has enough stored energy and fat and other chemical stores to fully combust the body. Even lean people have several pounds of fat in their tissues. This fat, once heated by the burning clothing, wicks into the clothing much as a candle wax is drawn into a lit candle wick, providing the fuel needed to keep the wick burning. The protein in the body also burns, but provides less energy than fat, with the water in the body being the main impediment to combustion. However, slow combustion lasting hours gives the water time to evaporate slowly. In an enclosed area such as a house, this moisture will recondense nearby, possibly on windows. Feet don't typically burn because they often have the least fat. Hands also have little fat but may burn if resting on the abdomen, which provides all of the necessary fat for combustion. Scalding can cause burn-like injuries, sometimes leading to death without setting fire to clothing. Although not applicable in cases where the body is charred and burnt, this has been suggested as a cause in at least one claimed SHC-like event. Brian J. Ford has suggested that ketosis, possibly caused by alcoholism or low-carb dieting, produces acetone which is highly flammable and could therefore lead to apparently spontaneous combustion. SHC can be confused with self-emulsion as a form of suicide. In the West, self-emulsion accounts for 1% of suicides, while Radford claims in developing countries the figure can be as high as 40%.
Sometimes there are reasonable explanations for the deaths, but proponents ignore official autopsies and contradictory evidence in favour of anecdotal accounts and personal testimonies. Inhaling, digesting phosphorus in different forms can cause the forming of phosphine, which can auto-ignite. Now we get into alternative theories. Larry E. Arnold, in his 1995 book Ablaze, proposed a pseudoscientific new subatomic particle, which he called pyrotron. Arnold also wrote that the flammability of a human body could be increased by certain circumstances, like increased alcohol in the blood. He further proposed that extreme stress could be the trigger that starts many combustions. This process may use no external oxygen to spread throughout the body, since it may not be an oxidation-reduction reaction. However, no reaction mechanism has been proposed. Researcher Joe Nickel has criticized Arnold's hypotheses as based on selective evidence and argument from ignorance. In his 1976 book Fire from Heaven, UK writer Michael Harrison suggests that SHC is connected to poltergeist activity because he argues the force which activates the poltergeist originates in and is supplied by a human being. Within the conducting summary, Harrison writes, quote, SHC, fatal or non-fatal, belongs to the extensive range of poltergeist phenomena. End quote. John Abrahamson suggested that ball lightning could account for spontaneous human combustion. Quote, this is circumstantial only, but the charring of human limbs seen in a number of ball lightning cases are very suggestive that this mechanism may have also occurred where people have had limbs combusted, says Abrahamson. End quote. Now we're going to get into some notable examples. First, we have the death of Mary Risa. Mary Hardy Risa, born March 8th of 1884 and died on July 2nd of 1951 of St. Petersburg, Florida, was a woman whose fiery death was surrounded by mystery and even controversially reported at the time to be a case of spontaneous human combustion, SHC. She was often referred to as the Cinder Lady in newspaper accounts of the day. Now we get into a death. At roughly 8am on July 2nd of 1951, Reese's landlady, Pansy Carpenter, arrived at Reese's apartment at 1200 Cherry Street, NE, St. Petersburg, Florida, with a telegram. Trying the door, she found the middle doorknob to be uncomfortably warm to the touch and called the police. Reese's remains, that were largely ashes, were found among the remnants of a chair in which she had been sitting. All that remained of Risa, who contemporaneously became known as the Cinder Lady, was part of her left foot that was wearing a slipper, her backbone and her skull. Plastic household objects at a distance from the seat of the fire were softened and had lost their shapes. Risa's skull had survived and was found among the ashes, but shrunken to the size of a teacup. A description disputed by a fire researcher who was in Brandonton for a conference at the time and managed to view the scene. Now we get into the investigation and results. On July 7th of 1951, St. Petersburg Police Chief J.R. Reihert sent a box of evidence from the scene to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. He included glass fragments found in the ashes, six small objects thought to be teeth, a section of the carpet, and the surviving shoe. Reichert included a note saying, quote, We request any information or theories that could explain how a human body could be so destroyed and the fire confined to such a small area and so little damage done to the structure of the building and the furniture in the room room, not even scorched or damaged by smoke, end quote. The FBI eventually declared that Risa had been incinerated by the wick effect, as she was a known user of sleeping pills, they hypothesized that she had fallen unconscious while smoking and set fire to her nightclothes. Once the body starts to burn, the FBI wrote in its report, there is enough fat and other inflammable substances to permit varying amounts of destruction to take place. Sometimes this destruction by burning will proceed to a degree which results in almost complete combustion of the body. End quote. When interviewed by a local paper, Reese's daughter in 
Moore said, quote, The cigarette dropped to her lap. Her fat was the fuel that kept her burning. The floor was cement and the chair was by itself. There was nothing around her to burn, end quote. Now we get into her personal life. Mary Reeser was born in Columbia, Pennsylvania and married Richard Reeser, born 1874-1875. Their only surviving child, also named Richard Reeser, was born in Pennsylvania in 1910 or 1911. She was buried in the Chestnut Hill Cemetery outside Mechanisburg, Pennsylvania. Now we come to another victim, Margaret Hogan. She was an 89-year-old widow who lived alone in a house on Prussia Street, Dublin, Ireland. She was found burned almost to the point of complete destruction on March 28th of 1970. Plastic flowers on a table in the center of the room had been reduced to liquid, and a television with a melted screen sat 12 feet from the armchair in which the ash and remains were found. Otherwise, the surroundings were almost untouched. Her two feet and both legs from below the knees were undamaged. A small coal fire had been burning in the grate when a neighbor left the house the previous day however no connection between this fire and that in which mrs hogan died could ever be found an inquest held on the 3rd of april 1970 recorded death by burning with the cause of the fire listed as unknown then we have Henry Thomas, a 73-year-old man, was found burned to death in the living room of his council house on the Rasu estate in Ebbvale, South Wales, in 1980. His entire body was incinerated, leaving only his skull and a portion of each leg below the knee. The feet and legs were still clothed in socks and trousers. Half the chair in which he'd been sitting in was also destroyed. Police forensic officers decided that the incineration of Thomas was due to the wick effect. Then we have the case in December of 2010, that being the death of Michael Faraty, a 76-year-old man in County Galloway, Ireland, was recorded as spontaneous combustion by the coroner. The doctor, Ciaran McLoughlin, made this statement at the inquiry into the death. Quote, this fire was thoroughly investigated and I'm left with the conclusion that this fits into the category of spontaneous human combustion for which there is no adequate explanation. End quote. In this example from the Skeptic magazine, there were two children from the same family who were tragically burned to death in different places at the same time. The evidence showed that although the coincidence seemed strange, the children both loved to play with fire and had been whipped for their behaviour in the past. Looking at all the evidence, the coroner and jury ruled that these were both accidental deaths. Now we are going to talk about the wick effect. The wick effect is the partial or total destruction of a human body by fire when the clothing of the victim soaks up melted human fat and acts like the wick of a candle. The wick effect is a phenomenon that is found to occur under certain conditions and has been thoroughly observed. Now we get into the details of the wick effect. The wick effect theory says a person is kept aflame through their own fats after being ignited accidentally or otherwise. The clothed human body acts like an inside-out candle with the fuel source, human fat, inside, and the wick, the clothing of the victim, outside. Hence, there is a continuous supply of fuel in the form of melting fat seeping into the victim's clothing. Fat contains a large amount of energy due to the presence of long hydrocarbon chains. Now we come to several examples of this. We have the Mary Reeser case, which I spoke about. Mary Reeser, born 1884 and died in 1951, of St. Petersburg, Florida, was most likely a victim of the wick effect. It was suspected that she'd accidentally ignited herself with a cigarette. The fat, which over time had been absorbed by her clothing, likely acted as fuel for the fire. At the scene, investigators found melted fat in the rug near Mary's body. Then we have the 1963 Leeds case. An investigation of a 1963 case in Leeds included an experiment with a wick effect. A small portion of human fat was wrapped in cloths to simulate clothing. A Bunsen burner flame was then applied to the candle. Due to the high water content of human fat, the flame had to be held on the candle for over a minute before it would catch fire. 
quote, one end of the candle was ignited by a Bunsen flame, the fat catching fire after about a minute. Although the Bunsen was removed at this point, combustion of the fat proceeded slowly along the length of the roll with a smoky yellow flame and much proportion of soot, the entire roll being consumed after about one hour, end quote. This gives some indication of the slow speed with which the wick effect will proceed. Now we come to the 1991 Oregon murder. In February of 1991, in Woodland near Medford, Oregon, USA, two hikers came across the burning body of a female adult lying face down in fallen leaves. They alerted the officials and a local deputy sheriff soon arrived. She had been stabbed several times in the upper regions of the chest and back. Both arms were spread outwards from the torso. The lower legs and surface of the neck showed signs of fire damage. The soft tissue of the right arm, torso and upper legs were consumed. The majority of bones of these parts retained their integrity, although frability was increased. Between the victim's mid-chest and knees, the fleshy parts of the body were mostly destroyed. Crime scene personnel reported that the pelvis and spine were not recoverable, having been reduced to a grey powder. Her killer had soaked the clothes and corpse in nearly a pint of barbecue starter fluid and set her on fire. In the well-oxygenated outdoor environment, this combination of circumstances, an immobile and clothed body with a high fat-to-muscle ratio, accelerant, lighter fluid, and artificial ignition, made it prime for the wick effect to occur. The murderer was arrested and made a full confession. He claimed to have set the body alight some 13 hours before it was discovered. Now we have the 1998 experiment. A large-scale experiment conducted for the BBC television program QED involved a dead pig's body being wrapped in a blanket and placed in a furnished room. The blanket was lit with the aid of a small amount of petrol. The body took some time to ignite and burned at a very high temperature with low flames. The heat collected at the top of the room and melted a television. However, the flames caused very little damage to the surroundings and the body burned for a number of hours before it was extinguished and examined. On examination, it was observed that the flesh and bones in the burnt portion had been destroyed. Now we come to the 2006 Geneva case. In October 2006, the body of a man was discovered at home in Geneva, almost completely incinerated between the mid-chest and the knees, most probably due to heart attack while smoking, followed by the wick effect. The chair containing the body was mostly consumed, but other objects in the room were almost undamaged, albeit covered with a brown, oily, or greasy coating. The source of the fire was most likely a cigarette or cigar. The man's dog also died in another room of the man's apartment, and this was attributed to carbon monoxide poisoning. Now we come to the 2010 Galway case. In December 2010, the cremated body of a 76-year-old man was found alongside an open fireplace in his home in Clearview Park at Ballybane in the Irish city of Galway. The fire investigators concluded that no accelerants were used and that the open fireplace was not the cause of the fire. The coroner in the case could not identify the cause of death due to extensive internal organ damage and concluded that, quote, this case fits into the category of spontaneous human combustion for which there is no adequate explanation. End quote. The body of the man, Michael Faraday, was found in the living room of his home on the 22nd of December 2010. The scene was searched by forensic experts from the Gardaí and the fire service, and a postmortem was carried out by pathologist Grace Callagy. Callagy noted that Faraday had suffered from type 2 diabetes and hypertension, but had not died from heart failure. Callagy concluded that the extensive nature of the burn sustained precludes determining the precise cause of death. End quote. In September 2011, the West Galloway coroner informed an inquiry into the death that he had searched medical literature and referred to Professor Bernard Knight's book on forensic pathology, which states that a high number of alleged incidents of spontaneous human combustion had taken place near an open fireplace or chimney. Benjamin Radford, deputy editor of the science magazine Skeptical Inquirer, 
questioned why the coroner had conclusively ruled out other possible explanations. So, listeners, the question remains, is spontaneous combustion real, or is there a plausible explanation such as the wick effect? The debate still continues on to this day. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remains unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time, next on unanswered questions. The monster with 21 faces was a name based on, and I'm going to butcher this name, Itogawa Rampo's fictional villain, The Fiend with 20 Faces, which we'll go into a little bit later in this podcast, used as an alias by the group responsible for the blackmail letters in the Glico Morinaga case in Japan. Sorry if I get that name wrong. In 1984.